Right. I'm pretty sure that's recording. The clock is ticking on it. Is that right? I'm also quite sure this one's recording. But I'll need this for something else in a moment. All right. Can you all see the screen behind me? If I move like this, does that get in your way? You might want to move to these seats over here because we're going to be looking at this quite a lot and I'd be really uh, embarrassed on my own account and sad for you if I was standing in your way so my big ugly mug is obscuring God's grandeur. That would be quite bad, wouldn't it? All right, let's pray, shall we? But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. Merciful Father, we pray that this evening, as we consider the holiness of the ordinary, you would help us to see how that day has broken and shone its light into our world so that everything is tinged now with your holiness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This poem, which you see on the screen behind me, is by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hands up if you've heard of Gerard Manley Hopkins. Classical education, can't beat it. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, as some of you know, was a Roman Catholic priest, born in 1844, died in 1889, widely considered by many as one of the greatest Victorian poets. And this is one of his poems. This evening, I'm going to read this poem to you. I'm going to briefly explain what some people think it means. Then I'm going to tell you what it actually means. Pardon me. And in the process, I hope we will discover some things about how God's grandeur, God's character, and therefore God's holiness, is manifested in the ordinary things of the world around us. That may lead us down some rabbit trails. It will certainly involve us in some kind of fairly heavy lifting theology. And I hope it will have, it will generate some practical questions which, uh, or at least change our perspective on many questions that we think about quite a lot. First, let me read this poem. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went... Oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, 
bright wings. So, God's Grandeur by Gerald Manley Hopkins. Let me read a summary of this poem that I found on the internet, a summary which will, I think, probably go to show that just as you can't learn theology from the internet, you can't learn much about poetry either. Here is what you would discover if you were cheating in your English literature exam and decided to just copy something off whatever third-rate website this is. The speaker describes a natural world through which God's presence runs like an electric current, becoming momentarily visible in flame-like flashes that resemble the sparkling of metal foil when moved in the light, shining from the shook foil. Alternately, the speaker describes God's presence as being like a rich oil, such as olive oil, whose true power or greatness is only revealed when crushed to its essence. It gathers to a greatness crushed like the ooze of like the oil, like the ooze of oil. Sorry, it gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Given this powerful undercurrent of evidence of God's presence in the world, the speaker asks, "Why do human beings not heed God's divine authority?" That's the meaning of the phrase. This writer believes, um, "Wreck his rod." Why do they not reckon with his authority? The speaker starts to answer his own question by describing the state of human life, the way that humanity over the generations has endlessly walked over the ground, and the way that industry and economic pursuits have damaged and corrupted the landscape such that it looks and smells only of men and not of God. Not only has the land been stripped bare of the natural things that once lived upon it, but even the shoes that people now wear have cut off their physical connection between their feet and the earth they walk on. You can see that in the fifth through eighth lines, can't you? And yet, the speaker asserts, nature never loses its power. For all this, nature is never spent. And deep down, life always continues to exist. Though the sun will always fade into the darkness of night in the west, morning will always follow by springing up over the edge of the horizon in the east. That's the meaning of lines 11 and 12. The last lights of the black west went morning at the brown brink eastward springs. I don't know whether you've ever watched the sunrise, but brown is the colour you see. Long time before the sun comes up, it's brown. Merging into kind of orange and yellow and then the sun appears. The source of this constant cycle of regeneration is the grace of a God who guards the broken world much like a mother bird uses its body to watch over and keep warm its eggs and hatchlings. Uh, such, we are to believe, is the meaning of God's grandeur. Now, I'm being a little bit unkind to the, the speaker, the, the writer of that short essay, because it's not exactly that what it says is wrong. It's a little bit like, I think, was it Woody Allen who read War and Peace and was asked what it's about, and he said, it's about some Russians. <laughs> well, yeah, it is about some Russians. And this poem is, well, some of the things the writer says are, are true and right, but you are going to work harder tonight because you are going to uh, discover... Uh, the richness of this poem. And what I want to show you is that what 
Gerard Manley Hopkins has done here is to write a poetic sermon on, well, which text of scripture shouts and screams at you from the first line? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Which is, which psalm? Psalm 19. Verse, excellent. Turn to Psalm 19, verse 1 with me. I read several online essays about this poem. Not one of them mentioned that the first line so transparently echoes Psalm 19, verse 1. It's written by a Jesuit priest, for heaven's sake. You'd think that somebody would have noticed. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Line 1 of God's grandeur. The world is charged with the glory of God. Yeah? Can you see what he's doing? He's, He's inviting us to begin by considering and reflecting on the meaning of Psalm 19. So that's where we're going to begin. We'll start with that, and we're going to unpick his sermon. You know how poems work. Poems are to ordinary literature like single malt whiskey is to beer. Right? Both are glorified barley. Okay? What you get is you get grain, and you malt it, uh, malted barley, and then you do stuff to it to make it wonderful. Everyone seems to think that the reason that Boaz and his men are celebrating at the end of the barley harvest in Ruth chapter uh, 3 uh, is that they've got bread. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so naive. Really. They've got beer. Well, great literature is to normal writing like beer is to bread. Great poetry is to normal writing like single malt whiskey is to bread. It is barley concentrated and magnified and charged with all its latent spectacularness, grandeur. And Psalm 19, verse 1, declares that the world is like single malt whiskey. It is the magnificence of God. Not so much distilled down, but bursting forth. What the created order is is the outward expression of all of God's perfections. Let's do some theology for a second. So you're looking at Psalm 19, verse 1, yeah, and you're looking at uh, Manley Hopkins, Gerald Manley Hopkins' rendition of that. Right. Think back to what you know about the doctrine of creation. What was there before the created order came to be? You may speak. Don't sit there like a class of... Uh, juniors, high school. Yeah, go on. Waters. Before the waters came to be. Nothing. nothing. And not nothing in the sense of a kind of nothingness that could be used as raw material, like a kind of amorphous pre-creation Play-Doh that God could kind of make the world out of. The world was not made from nothing in the sense that bread is made from dough. The the phrase from nothing, actually, I've mentioned this a few times before. The phrase ex nihilo, 
out of nothing, does not appear in the Bible as a description of creation. It appears in the Apocrypha. But the Bible says that from him, Romans 11, and therefore through him and to him are all things, and so to him be glory forever. It is from God that all things come, correct? There's nothing else apart from God and the creation. And before the creation was, the only thing that there is is God. Now what's God going to design things on the basis of? What's, what's the blueprint that he's going to look at when he's thinking, hmm, what shall I make? What? He looks at himself. Yeah, you, you were there when we had um, uh, Mr. Jim Jordan, who is now in our congregation. Talk about scary, right? Having that man in the congregation. And, and we had this conversation in the forum, our Q&A time after a sermon recently, and he just pointed out that what, what actually what God the Father looks at is probably the pattern of himself, the, intra, the intra-Trinitarian pattern of himself. So God looks in at himself relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and Father, the speaker, speaks the word, which is carried on his breath, breath, spirit, same word in both Hebrew and Greek, and brings the world into being. So which means that every single thing that God spoke into being when he created the heavens and the earth reflects the character of God, which means that holiness is found within the created order as it was created. The world is charged with the glory of God. You could look at rocks and fire and flowing water and trees and strong towers and conclude that God is like rocks and strong towers and flowing water and fire and trees. Because he is. The reason scripture uses those concrete objects to describe what God is like is because they were first patterned on him. It's not that God is like made all this stuff, and now he's scratching his head thinking, now, what shall I use to describe myself? Oh, I, well, it turns out I'm a bit like a tree. <laughs> well, that's quite cool. Turns out I'm a bit like a strong tower. Well, that's quite handy. So when I'm trying to explain to people what I'm like, I can say I'm like a strong tower. No, no. God made those things in the first instance as images of him. How much of the created order is in the image of God? Trick question. Everything. Everything. Who said everything? You've read your barvink, Yeah. So Herman Barvink points out that, yes, it's true in Genesis 1 that it is men and women who are described as being in the, created in the image of God. But in a broader sense, everything is patterned on God. There is, this is Calvin, I'm trying to paraphrase, I can't remember the, what he says. There is not one atom of all creation in which one cannot discern some spark of his divinity. That's what, I think that's Calvin. It is Calvin, I, I, I can't remember if I've got the quote exactly right. Then he says, this is going to blow your mind, it blew mine. He said, I confess it can be said, provided it be said with a reverent mind, that nature is God. Stick that in your systematic theology and smoke it. That's Calvin. That's like safe, middle-of-the-road Calvin. That's not some edgy 21st century kind of speculative theologian. It's not some medieval Catholic, and it's not some guy in the early church who's like living with the stylites out on some pillar in the wilderness and just musing on the divine. That's Calvin telling us that if you say it with a reverent mind, you can say the created order is God. Because, and only in this sense, everything that exists is patterned on him first. So where, if that's how it was now, if that's how it had remained, where could you find holiness? Everywhere. You could go out into the highways and byways around Nacogdoches as Pastor Booth does. And you could 
be looking around you at the trees, and particularly at the fallen down trees. Because as Pastor Booth has said privately, and I hope you don't mind my sharing this, once you have a lathe, you don't see trees, you see bowls. <laughs> right? You, you could go out, and, and I've discovered that Pastor Booth was kind enough to give me his middle-sized lathe. I can't. Such an act of kindness. I, I thought maybe when I retire, maybe I'll be able to, I always wanted to have a lathe for like the last 10 years. And we were talking about it. He said, would you use it if I gave it to you? I'm like, yes, <laughs> like all the time. People at All Saints might wonder what's happened to their pastor or one of their pastors, but um, where is he? Didn't we have two pastors? Guy speaks funny. You know? He's at home working <laughs> on the latest bowl, right? Anyway, but I, don't, I promise I do still work. Um, where was I? Yes, that's right. So you could, if nothing had gone wrong with the world, right, what you could do is you could walk around the, the roads around Nacogdoches and you could see um, a piece of fallen down oak and you could perceive in it the latent perfection of God Almighty and you take it home and you, you take that which is good because the creation was already good when God made it, Correct. Yeah? God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, end of Genesis 1. But then you say, ha, 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 I've got an idea. Because it turns out you can get something that's very good and make it better. The process of making it better is called maturity, or, or moving towards maturity. Something can be perfect and still be improved. There's no headroom, because infinity isn't like a ceiling. Infinity is just the, the, the thing that mathematicians used to describe the fact that you can always still keep going higher. So you can make a creation that's very good, but young. And you can make it better by bringing it to maturity. Like you can see a, a tree grow, a, a sapling grow into a tree, or a child grow into a, a woman, or a man, or a, a busted old oak branch be glorified, brought to maturity as a bowl. And who knows for how many hundreds of years the, the grain that has been exposed that nobody had ever seen before on those bowls would mature and darken and change imperceptibly with the passing of the decades so that every new set of eyes that fell upon it saw some new perfection of the beauty and holiness and glory and Grandeur of God shining forth. If nothing had ever gone wrong. If nothing had gone wrong, it would still be the case that... Second line. See, we're making some progress. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. I don't actually know what that's a reference to. I, th I think probably this is one of the points where the... The, um, uh, the essays get it right. The, in the background is Victorian England with the Industrial Revolution and the um, polluting of the landscape by factories and smoke and smog and dust and tread, 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 trod, 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 trod like in the middle of this poem. And I think the problem is the interpreters imagine that's all it's about. So it becomes a kind of uh, 19th century environmentalist manifesto. Wouldn't it be great to return to the land of green fields and open farmland rather than all these factories everywhere? And if you've been to England, which at least one or two of us have, one of us has, 
Um, actually, some of the rolling hills are really nice, and it is a shame that there are these big ugly factories plonked in the middle of some of them. But the, the poem is about much more than that. And you see that in the third line. Just look what happens. So line one and two, the, the magnificence of God blazes forth in all that he has made and all that he has done. It's not just things, by the way, that image God's glory. It's actions, too. You, way you know this is because God is described not just in terms of things in the Bible, but in terms of actions. He's a builder. He's a carpenter. He's a painter. Uh, he's a, a soldier and a fighter. And he's um, one who, a uh, hint of where we might be going, hovers like a bird over its young. And he, do, he does all these actions. So all created actions as well as all created objects reflect God's glory. First two lines. But then the third line, it gathers to a greatness or it reaches a climax. Now this is the hard bit. Like the ooze of oil, crushed. What might it be that is the climax of God's self-revelation, which could be described as being like the ooze of oil, crushed? Gethsemane. Gethsemane? Why Gethsemane? Yeah, because something oozes from him. Yes, Gethsemane. Oil. Anointing. Anointing. Can you think of any other imagery of the spirit in this poem? Oil. The Holy Ghost is mentioned specifically in line 13, the second to last line. Line 14, um, bright wings. You know, you've got, you've got imagery of the spirit of God latent within this text. Oil is another image for the Spirit of God, Zechariah 4. And of course it is, because um, the, the Spirit is also the flames in the, on the heads of the disciples in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost. And what you're seeing in Acts 2 is a human version of the menorah, the candle, the, the, the lampstand in the temple, which, where you've got, you've got a tree with flames coming out of it in the temple, you have people with flames on their heads on the day of Pentecost. Why would you have a tree burning being like people burning? Well, there's the spirit in both of them. There's oil fueling the tree, and there's spirit fueling the flames on the heads of the people. And you, obviously, you realize that people are like trees, which is the reason why when the guy was healed by Jesus and he's blind and he was halfway healed, what did he see? I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but is delighted in the yada, yada, yada. He is like a tree. Men are like trees. So if you want to have, what's the fulfillment of the menorah in the temple burning with the oil that's the spirit of God? It's men and women filled with the thing that's the fulfillment of the oil, the spirit, burning on the day of Pentecost. So, um, it gathers to a greatness like, an, like the ooze of oil. Who is the one from whom the Spirit oozes? Jesus, obviously, right? The, the climax of God's self-revelation is the incarnation of Christ, well, but not quite. The climax of God's self-disclosure is the death of the incarnate Christ. Like the ooze of oil crushed, 
full stop. Can you see how dramatic that is? How the, the structure of the poem highlights the crushing? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because why was that one crushed? Well, he's crushed because somebody's going to have to crush the head of the serpent. Who's going to do that? Well, maybe Jesus will be the son who is the, the mighty conqueror, and he will go and stamp on the heads of all his enemies. And so there he, he, he's confronted with the greatest military power of the age, the Romans, in league with the strongest and most influential religious power of the age, his own people and the Jewish leaders. And he allows his own head to be, not quite crushed, but pierced. Yeah, The thorns, which only began growing in the garden, come back to the thorns again in a minute or two, after the sin of humanity, which are themselves the sign of the curse, were found on the head of the one who was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. So can you see what's happening? The first three lines plus one word now is a depiction of, or a description of, how God has revealed himself in the world, first in creation, and then in Christ, and specifically Christ crushed. Which then makes sense of the really puzzling second half of the fourth line. Why do men then now not recognize his rod, rod in the Bible. What do you do with a rod? One of two things. Psalm 23, what do you do with a rod? Discipline. Discipline. Shepherd. Shepherd. What else? Psalm 2. Yeah. Break them with a rod of iron. Smash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Rods are basically, uh, discipline is is the broad term which encompasses both elements. They are either uh, tools of judgment. Uh, the nations that gather together against the Lord and against his anointed are smashed into pieces like a bunch of broken pottery, Psalm 2, with a rod. Have you ever dropped a piece of pottery on a floor like this? You know what a mess it makes? You, know, you, you, you drop it over here and you're picking up shards of glaze over in the far corner of the room six weeks later because it just goes everywhere. That's the first thing you do with a rod. The second thing you do with a rod is um, Psalm 23, your rod and staff... They comfort me. So how is it possible that the rod could both be an instrument of judgment and a means of comfort? Or maybe if the rod was laid against the back and smashed against the head of the sun who was crushed for our iniquities, so that we might be comforted. Why do men now not recognize that through the judgment of the Son, comfort has come? You see how the first four stanzas, first four lines work? God has revealed all his grandeur in all the created world. The climax of his revelation of himself is in Christ, and specifically the crucified Christ who was crushed. Why do men and women now not realize or understand that the judgment on the Messiah came to bring us comfort. It's a bit puzzling, isn't it? And it, that question is just left hanging, not answered. There's some debate in the literature about the degree to which the next four stanzas answer the question. I, I don't think they answer the question. I think what they do is provide more background to the question. And specifically to the sin that made Christ's death necessary, 
And crucially, the effects of that sin on people. Remember, if sin hadn't entered the world, um, we wouldn't be in a situation, well, we positively, we would be in a situation where we could do the bold thing. Wonderfully, we could go around looking, looking at the created world. You could look at the stars, and you could look at the trees, and look at the mountains, and look at what your own hands had made, and just see God right there. And is that wickedness and blindness that makes it impossible for us to see that. And, and in, verse, in lines 5 through 8, you get a meditation on the character of that blindness and its effects. Just look with me again. I'll read those lines. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And where's man's smudge and shares man's smell? The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shot. Notice the prevalence of a particular image, the image of the ground. You notice that? In line five, where do you tread? On the ground, right? Line seven, the soil. But what's the soil like? Bare, nothing growing. And nor can foot feel being shod. It, you, your feet can't feel whatever it is under there because you've got shoes on. There is a, a hint of you know, technological progress does something, shoes, etc. But that's, there's much more than that's going, going on here because just think for a second. Ground and feet, where do they enter the narrative of the consequences of sin in Genesis? Genesis 3. What happens to the ground? It becomes hard. In, in one sense, that must be true. It's not quite the terms that... That's right, that's right, exactly. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Until you return to the dust, for dust you are. And dust to dust you shall return. So, so the, the curse on Adam, distinctively on Adam, is a curse on the ground. He's a farmer. So the ground is now not going to yield its fruit in the same way that it did before. You're going to plant barley, seeking, seeking what whiskey, obviously, the, 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 the very climax of all created goodness in a glass of 22-year-old Macallan or something. something. Um, and what you get is thorns. And generations, now look at line five. Generations have trod and trod and trod, and they've tried to do their work. And what have they experienced? This frustration and bitterness of the, the trade of labor has produced exhaustion. Everything is seared. With, when you sear something, you know, like you, if you get a piece of steak and you sear it, you, you cauterize its surface. Right? And, and actually you make it more tasty because it's, um, it's kind of cooked on the outside and it's kind of chewy and nice. But if, you, if, if your feet or your hands are seared, then they're calloused and perhaps burned, but injured and damaged by the work you've been doing with them. You ever been like climbing a rope? You know, I don't know whether you've ever done this. And then you slide, slide down. Most kids do that once, Yeah. Very few kids do it twice. It's like, and all the skin is left sort of 15 feet up there off your hands because your hands are seared. Yeah? It's like uh, 
almost everybody in their life will buy one pair of shoes that don't fit them because they were cheap or special offer, right? So I'll, I'll grow into them or, or they'll, they'll kind of mold to my feet and six months later when you've, you know, done with those blisters, you throw the shoes out and my father once said this to me, I, I bought a pair of shoes because they were like 15 pounds or something special offer and I bought them and, and they didn't really fit and he said, most people buy one pair of shoes that don't fit. Almost never, nobody ever buys two. Um, seared, burned skin, bleared, smeared with toil. It's a picture of dirty, grimy, unattractive um, factory workers, probably. Yes, that probably is the image he's got in mind. You started with this pristine garden-like wilderness, that green and pleasant land of England. I want to sing the national anthem. Oh, sorry. Um, my national anthem. Um, and you end up with this dirty black, cold dust everywhere, grimy men trudging home under the curse of work. And where's man's smudge? And bears man's, sorry, shares man's smell. I wonder, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if the smell thing is picking up some of the imagery of smell we thought about in the first um, talk that I had the opportunity to give you earlier today when the smell ought to be the smell of the holiness of God. Yeah? The, whether it's the, the flowers in the garden or the distinctive aroma of the incense and the fragranced oil in the tabernacle. But now everything stinks of frustrated labor. And the, the line eight, the soil is bare now. Well, why? Well, it's because like thorns and thistles. You can't, it's fruitless. And worst of all, perhaps, nor can foot feel being shod. I think this is a fascinating line, because I think what it speaks to is this. Um, what do you do when there are thorns and thistles? What would you do? Wear, wear gloves and wear shoes, exactly. If you, have you read the accounts of um, the uh, journey uh, by um, Lewis and Clark and the rest of their expedition across the United, what now the United States? And um, when they ran out of shoes and had to walk through just wilderness filled with prickly pears barefoot, because they got no shoes. I mean, they would make like two dozen pairs of moccasins for themselves, and each pair would last like two weeks before they just literally fell to pieces. But when you're going three years, eventually you run out of shoes. And trudging through the wilderness, just, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what those men went through. Um, well, what would you do? You put shoes on. Because if you put shoes on, big clunky boots like mine, <laughs> then you can hide from yourself the reality of the thorns. Yeah? You can march through a field of thorns and say they're not there because like, you've got boots on. Feet that are shod are feet that can hide the wearer from the reality of the effects of sin in the world. The worst part of it all, in lines five through eight, I think, in this poem, is not simply that the world is cursed and that work is now frustrating and that you can't see the pristine goodness of the glory of God in everything. What you see is smudge, bleared, smeared with toil. That's not 
the worst of it, the worst of it is that we have blinded ourselves to that reality and we carry on kidding ourselves that it's all fine. Nor can foot feel. The thing that was put there to show you that there's a problem, you've just got to put a big clonking pair of tecovas on so that you can march through life as though there's nothing wrong. And you wonder why you end life frustrated, or not even end life. You get to wherever you are. 15, past that. 19, 22, coming out of college. First couple of years in your first job, and you're like, what was it all for? Well, the truth is, um, you put some big clunky boots on, to obscure from yourself the reality of the pain of the world, but eventually the thorns poke through the souls. And the reality of the brokenness of the world hits home. So we're in a real mess, right? Because first four lines, God has charged the world with his grandeur and glory. Everything is rich and full of his perfections. And if only we could go back to that, we could just read in every thing and in every action all of his perfection, whatever it was that you were doing, farmer, bowl turner, golfer, builder, hiker, carpenter, metal worker, whatever it was, you'd see in what you were doing the wonder of God in these things that he and now you have made. But we're way past that. The climax of his revelation is in the crushed sun. But why do men not even realise line four, what the Lord is doing there. The real reason is, lines five to eight, the sin has not only created thorns and thistles everywhere, but we've put shoes on our feet so we can't feel them. So we're in this perilous situation now because it looks like nature's capacity to reveal the glory of God to us is spent. Nature, the natural world, the created order, can no longer display the grandeur of God. We can no longer look at a tree or a mountain or a sunset or a star or a child. We can no longer do all the things that we do and see in those things God's hand because nature is empty. Nature is spent. Oh, no it isn't. And for, not but, and for all this, Nature is never spent. What? (laughs) How? How is there left in the created order anything that could now reveal God and his character to us? Well, there lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Hopkins does this. He'll, He'll miss out words like in, deep down in things that just don't fit in the line Um, it's a statement that there is something deep down there, now of course the temptation for a a critic who's not familiar with scripture is simply to romanticise this, and see actually C. Hopkins is a kind of heir of the romantics who, who really wanted to see all this industry and stuff kind of taken away and we return to the pristineness of nature and and order removed and spontaneity in its place and, and, uh, and emotion run free and structure dissolved. And, uh, but it's not as simple as that, is it? It's not just that Hopkins is saying, well, there is some beauty deep down if you look hard enough. That, that was superficial. That's exactly the sort of thing that a, a junior high school student would think that this is about when they'd read it in an essay on the internet somewhere. 
Yeah. Oh, although everything's a bit messed up, there's still some kind of beauty out there somewhere. No, it's more specific than that. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs. There's a new day. Well, we're in Genesis. Let's think about days, shall we? How many days are there in Genesis chapter 1 and and the start of 2? Seven. How many of those days come to an end? Six. Do you notice that? The, if you look, you don't need to look now, but you, you can see it. In Genesis 2, the, the formula at the end of the day, and it was evening and it was morning, the eighth day, is missing from the seventh day. And this doesn't answer the question of how those dates relate to historical time or anything like that. But what it does is it creates a literary structure in which, from a literary standpoint, the whole of the unfolding plan of the rest of Scripture occupies that seventh day. It's probably what's in Jesus' mind when he speaks in, in um, John 5. He's having in contra- controversy, and he said controversy, I need to not, stay, not say that. He's in con- controversy with the Pharisees about why he's working on the Sabbath, and he explains, well, my, my father is always working to this very day, and I too am working. The point is that my father works on the Sabbath. He's been doing it ever since the dawn of creation. This is one long Sabbath day, seventh day, and if he's allowed to do it, then I'm allowed to do it, because I'm just like my dad. And they really crossed him, because they realised he was making himself equal with God. They understood exactly what he was saying. So the whole of created history um, occupies, well, you've got the first six days of creation, then you've got this long seventh day. It's one week for the whole of creation. Until morning at the brown brink eastward springs. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, where am I quoting from? Sounds like Narnia. No, it sounds like Narnia. Yeah, it's not Narnia. It might be Narnia. Resurrection. The resurrection account, exactly. The first day of the week. First day of a new week, in other words. A, a, a new day is dawning with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ inaugurates a new era. It's the first day, because days run on a seven-day cycle, and once you get to the end of the seventh day, you don't go to the eighth day, you go to the first day. Actually, you do go to the eighth day, and you know why, because all the people at All Saints fill in the explanation at this point. Um, eight is a numerical symbol for new creation. Uh, eight people in the ark. David is the eighth son of Jesse. Resurrected on the eighth day. How many corners does the world have? Four. So if you have two worlds, because you've got the old one, now you've got a new one, how many corners have you got in total? Eight, obviously. So eight is a numerical symbol for the new world. Eighth day, first day, resurrection day. That day is brought into being by the resurrection of Jesus. Who is it who raised Jesus from the dead. Well, it was God the Father by the power of the Spirit, which is explained in verse th- in line 13. Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Holy Ghost, bird imagery. Where do you find bird imagery in the Bible connected with the Holy Spirit? 
Come on. Jesus' baptism. Which kind of bird? Dove. Excellent. Where have you seen a dove before in the Bible? Noah's Ark. Remember the birds? What were the birds in, that Noah sent out from the Ark in Genesis 8? Four birds. Well, there were four bird sendings out. Yeah, go on. Not quite. Pigeon, raven, crow. No, raven, dove, dove, dove. Raven goes and he's like, well, I'm doing. He flutters around backwards and forwards and he's like totally clueless. And Noah's like, mm, ravens obviously don't work around here. So, so um, doves, first dove goes out and comes back. It's like, well, okay, there's clearly no land. Second dove goes out. What does it bring back? Olive, Olive branch. Why? Because oil, duh. Spirit. Two images of the spirit. One bird, one olive branch. Third dove goes out and doesn't come back. Where does it land? Christ. Now, okay, where did that dove land? Okay, There's two answers to this question. The first answer is it landed on the solid ground which would have emerged from the waters which were the flood in the days of Noah, correct? That's why it didn't come back. Like, historically speaking, it didn't just fly around forever and ever and ever and ever. It, it, it actually went and landed somewhere. It's like, thank goodness for this. I don't have to live on a boat with all those smelly animals anymore. I can actually build a nest and do dove stuff. Right? So it, it, what, it, what it does is it lands on that new dry land which emerges from the waters, which is to say it lands in the new world. The world that is formed when the waters recede and the land emerges, it's like a replay of Genesis 1, which is why what God says to Noah in Genesis 9 is exactly like, not quite the same, but almost exactly the same as what he says to Adam in Genesis 1. Fill the earth and subdue it and uh, multiply on it and have dominion over it. He says more or less the same thing, actually he intensifies it. So Noah is like a new Adam, and the world that's created there is a new creation. Wherever it is that the dove lands is the new world that has been created so we can start again now in the days of Noah. Historically, that's what would have happened to that dove. But the, the landing of the dove is not related in Scripture. It's not described. Until, well, there's the Hebrew name Yonah, which we translate Jonah, means dove. Because obviously Jonah is the one who is like the, the messenger of the spirit to take the gospel to the Gentile nations of the world, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it or towards it. He's, he's the, the spirit messenger and he refuses to go, and you know that story. But the, the next time a dove lands is on the head of Jesus. So who is the one in whom that new world is constituted? Jesus is where the dove lands. Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Because the Holy Ghost broods over this world with warm breast, it's like a bird, and with... <gasps> Bright wings. Yeah? It's a bird landing. Now, brood, this is really interesting. Um, I don't know quite what action this is referring to. I think it's the either the, the kind of nesting of a bird or the fluttering of a bird, the hovering of a bird over its nest. And the reason I think it's probably the latter is because of the reference right at the end of the poem to bright wings. You don't really see the wings of a bird and they don't, certainly don't look bright if it's just sort of sitting there. But if it's fluttering around, then you see its wings. And especially if they're really shiny wings, um, bright wings, then it's really magnificent. In London, in England, there are these parakeets, 
which had somehow managed to make it from the rainforests of Brazil to the parks of London. Uh, it's really funny. We, we, people think what happened is that um, they were brought over as pets and then let loose or just escaped. And it turns out they really there's like a little slot in the food chain and they do a much better job of being birds than all of the native English birds. And so you could go to the, some of the parks around um, where I used to live and you'd see these flocks of shining bright green birds with bright red beaks and like shoom, and you, especially if you went early in the morning or late in the evening when they come to roost or whatever you see them and it's just magnificent you see the bright wings when they're flying now very interesting so turn with me to Deuteronomy 32 we're nearly finished I promise Deuteronomy 32 this is a um, what's the word? Uh, a poetic celebration of the glorious works of God that Moses has witnessed. And so it includes a, a depiction and a thanksgiving for God's Exodus rescue. And if you look particularly in verse 10, I'll read from verse 10. He, that's the Lord, found him, Israel, Jacob, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, pinions of tail feathers. So this is like, it's depicting the journey of Israel through the wilderness guided by the Lord, a little bit like what should have happened in the Lord of the Rings, where like, where are those eagles? <laughs> it would have been so much simpler. Have you seen those little YouTube videos, how it should have ended? I think there's one for the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? And it's like 30 seconds long. And it's like, they're at the Council of Elrond, and we need to do something with this ring. And Gandalf's like, and gets the eagles, gives the eagles a bit of ring, and they just fly over, drop it in Mount Doom, and it's all done. That would have been really straightforward. Well, that's, no, it's not quite like that, but it's, it's that kind of imagery, reverently understood, that's in view here. The Lord is like the eagle that soars and hovers over its young, guiding them through the wilderness. It's very intriguing, then, to note that verb translated flutters. It's the Hebrew verb rahap. is found in one other place in Scripture. Do you know where it is? Where something hoppers, hovers here? Yeah. Genesis 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was doing what? Hovering. Hovering. Hovering over the face of the waters. Just before the world is made. You've got birds hovering, wings, new creation being made. Which is also why the howling waste of the wilderness, that uh, the howling waste translates tohu, part of the tohu vabohu formless and void of Genesis 1. Before the breath of the Spirit breathed new life into this ruined wasteland of Israel, not in Genesis 1, and brings a new day to dawn. So, let's gather some of these threads together. Uh, what this poem is highlighting is that the resurrection of Christ, which is brought about by the, and accompanied by the work of the Spirit, actually it's followed by the gift of the Spirit, remember the question you asked um, earlier, you're right, 
that resurrection has restored the original capacity of the created order to reveal all of the glory and goodness of God. All that we've been saying tonight, it's all in Calvin. Calvin, book one, chapters one, chapter one, no, chapters one through six. It's all in, it's all in there. The, the world reveals God's glory. Sin has um, ruined the world in the sense that we now make a mess of it and it doesn't cooperate with us. What we need is the climax of God's self-disclosure in his crushed son and then the pouring out of the spirit to renew us in our relationship with the world so that now, Pastor Booth, you can drive around the lanes around your home near Nacogdoches and you can see a bowl. And you can take it home and you can bring forth its latent grandeur. And the same is to be said of every single thing that we do and every single thing that we encounter. Every created thing, every human action now is and can be understood as and should be experienced as an ex- it's almost not too strong to say an encounter with God because Calvin, provided it be said with a reverent mind, creation is God. Nature is God. And he says nature, not creation. It's not that the God is in this wooden thing. It is that this wooden thing, like all those wooden things, and like all the things that you might spend the rest of your lives doing, from building spreadsheets and uh, insulating houses and bearing children and teaching math, and all those things are a manifestation of the glory and grandeur of the Creator. Because the whole creation has been and is being restored in Christ and by the Spirit. Let me read this poem one more time and then we'll finish. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things and though the last lights off the black west went oh morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the holy ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah bright wings let's sing shall we Miss Landrum, can we prevail upon you to play for us, please? Beg your pardon? 282. 282. Let's stand together and sing.
No, you may use that. Please go ahead. Thank you.